0: confession to make I'm letting go I um was in Arizona all week and I'm not very prepared I'm in slippers I'm in sweatpants so my slacks are gone my shoes are gone and I'm in a hoodie my button up collar is gone. I'm letting go cuz I'm unprepared. So I'm glad you're all here. Um what book are we in by the way? Do you guys know? A- Amos? Are you sure it's Amos? Nay. Oh dear. This is going to be fun. Okay. Well, I good thing I brought the book. I br- Oh Crazy 08, How a Cast of Cranks, Rogues, Boneheads, and Magnates Created the Greatest Year in Baseball History by Kate Murphy. Whoops. Um, Okay, well, I thought I was going to do some pleasure reading, but um, we're in Amos. How about that? Why don't you guys find Amos? Let's do that. Oh, and of course, I bring my New Testament Bible. Okay, well, I'll use my phone. Oh. Jeremy just texted me. He says, do you want to hang out on Friday... The 10th? Is that the 10th Friday? Oh, Jeremy. Hold on. That's when the movie comes out. Oh, sweet. Hold on. This is important. He wants to see it. I need to um, see if we can get tickets before it's sold out. You guys are finding Amos, right? The Angels signed a player. Ooh, I got to read up on this. And. Now, why would they spend that money? Speaking of money, I should go to Bank of America, make sure I can afford these movie tickets. Oh. uh, Yeah, I'm. Oh, man. I know, I totally forgot. I'm here in the middle of church. I'm trying to figure out where Amos is because I left my Bible somewhere. Um, Okay, thank you. Sorry, guys. That was important. Okay, Amos. Um, I forgot. I thought Amos was a different... It's in my Bible. I was thinking of um, Amaziah or something. Okay. (laughs) Amos, yeah, I'm a little unprepared. Um, Now, my question to you is, what if, what if I really was unprepared? What if I forgot that I had a meeting with you tonight? That we were going to meet with God tonight? What if, what if you caught Pastor Brandon in his home lounge? I didn't, oh, Did you guys hear about Iran? Yeah. yeah, I'm very unprepared. Okay, well, news alert. There it is. Uh, so, what if I wasn't? What was I saying? <laughs> prepared. prepared. Yes. What if I wasn't prepared? I don't remember. I was saying something about that, but yeah, it would be kind of. Oh, and I forgot that we had. We were going to meet to worship God. Man. I mean, I guess every now and then you may wonder that message was not his best. He must not have been prepared. But at least I pretended I was. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> um, at least give us the decency, Pastor Brandon. We showed up. At least you meet us halfway. But this uh, bringing your baseball book and talking to Jeremy and booking movie tickets and wearing whatever is comfortable. Although some people probably wouldn't mind Ugh. seriously okay, oh, Jeremy can't go now I have to cancel I have to call to see if I can cancel those tickets. It's such a mess. All right, well, anyways, that won't happen again. Um, this is life right here. We are We actually by default tend not to be prepared for things. I don't know if you noticed that. When you wake up in the morning, you're not prepared for an emergency. When you, unless you study, you're not prepared for your pop quiz. Um, We don't go through life prepared. I'm not prepared to drive as soon as I'm of age. I have to practice that, right? Do you remember that? Practicing for your driver's license? Um, We're just by default. If we just let ourselves go through life, and just be organic, man, as whatever happens to me happens, you will not be prepared for anything. And if I, you know, it's just a very obvious fact, if I chose Amos, I got this book down, um, and just showed up like I forgot it was 6 o'clock, and let's just do this, like, I wouldn't by nature be ready to share something worth your time. Now, it would be God's word, and reading it, obviously, would have benefit. But what I mean is, you all left your homes. You did whatever. You're skipping whatever else you could do on Sunday night because you're assuming that we're not just going to read the text, which you could do in your sweats at home in your favorite chair, right? So preparation takes work. Now, here's the other way we tend to prepare if we are to prepare, I'm a teacher, so I have the privilege of seeing some of this insight, which is always youth are great because they're an obvious example of what we still do in subtle ways. Uh, The way that they do their homework, the way they work on. Oh, sorry, Katrina. (laughs) I've seen you work back there. I know. Uh, We. (laughs) You're supposed. Okay, whatever. Supposed, I forgot she is down here. Um, this is other examples. Katrina's is not one of my students. But um, they tend to, the way that I'm trying to do things with you, and my phone keeps interrupting me, this is, this is often how we try to prepare for things. We're like, especially with God, we want to prepare for what he has for our lives, but God is only a component of everything else we're trying to prepare. We're not allowing him to be that which we're preparing ourselves for. And so the way that a lot of people go about big projects or homework or school or whatever is thrown in your lap, we often want to multitask it. Well, the reality is women are far better at multitasking than men. But my example is not how bad I am at multitasking and how distracted, as Dr. Guy pointed out, I can be. It was that... um, It's that... We technically can't multitask no matter who you are. We work one task. We can switch between tasks, but we can't multitask. And the error in our way is that we try to multitask God. We try to think that we can still be carving out a path that we're forging. And as long as God is in the picture, we're okay. But that's actually multitasking. What he wants, what I want, what I'm planning, what he's planning... You can't, you're just going to be switching back and forth. And your preparation, sometimes prepping a sermon is a lot like that with interruptions and calls and texts and, oh, I forgot to do that. And then rabbit trails of thoughts of Amos reminds me of this. And then you go over there and before you know it, oh, I'm three hours in the hole and I've got nothing. It, that happens. And I think we can all relate to that aspect of life. But the question is are we unintentionally walking with God the same way? Or if we made ourselves to where we're preparing what he has for us, and that is the goal of life. Now, other things can come in, but they must be underneath God. Um, I want us to look at Amos chapter 4, and then we'll cover the book as a whole. But chapter 4 to me is just, if this was this was hitting home. So we'll read Amos chapter 4. By the way, if you haven't found Amos yet, it's um, Daniel Hosea Amos. Daniel Hosea Joel Amos. And if you're wondering why we're kind of jumping, remember I tried to get Micah on Christmas Sunday because it had a good Christmas passage. Denny taught Jonah, and we had sealed his date in a long time ago. So now we're going through them in order, if that makes sense. So Someone thought we're an Obadiah. Someone thought Nahum. I'm like, you're all right in a way. Grab a bookmark, and you'll be right on track from now on. So, okay, but so Amos chapter 4, here we go. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. Oh, there's so much there. First of all, yes, who Amos just did call the women of Samaria cows. I'm sure he had a duck and run after that sermon. <laughs> um, then uh, he did accuse them of giving their husbands honey lists. And then all the women got quiet. All right. so <laughs> Bring that we may drink. Uh, one translation actually says, uh, do what we want you to do. So they're being bossy. Verse 2. The Lord Yahweh has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks. And by the way, not to get too graphic, but when you slaughter a cow and you're going to transport the meat and dry it, you use hooks. Amos is carrying on the metaphor right now. They will take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into harmon. He's saying, you will go into exile. You're going to leave your homeland. And it's not going to be in the most humane manner. Verse 4. Now, God is daring the Israelites here. Bethel, you'll see that word. uh, Come to Bethel and transgress or sin. Bethel was one of the cities, you might remember this, after King Solomon died and the kingdom was at its height, he had a son named Rehoboam who was foolish. Because dad didn't splurge any of the wisdom down to his son. And Rehoboam wanted to tax the people more and be ruthless with them because he was young and felt like he had to prove himself. Jeroboam is a politically ambitious young man who takes advantage of the situation and says to all of Israel, look, if you don't want to follow Rehoboam, don't. I'll lower the taxes. I'll be kind. It will be better than it was with Solomon. And so ten of the tribes of Israel follow Jeroboam and two remain with Rehoboam, Solomon's son. They camp out in Jerusalem, and that's Judah and Benjamin. And then the other ten are the northern tribes, and they're following Jeroboam. This is all in 1 Kings 12 and 13. Um, And Jeroboam sets up, so that they don't mingle with their southern neighbors, he wants to be a separate kingdom, he sets up his own temple. And one he puts in Bethel. And as the god in Bethel, he puts up a golden calf so this is what God's talking about now to the people of Israel. He's saying he's daring them. All right. You don't think exile's coming? Fine. Keep going to Bethel and sin there. So come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal, obviously another idolatrous town, and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them. For so you love to do, O oh, people of Israel, declares the Lord Yahweh. He's mocking their religious zeal. Because here's classic multitasking. Oh, no, 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 we haven't pushed God out of our life. He's there. But they've, off, they've crowded an awful lot of other things in their life. So they're, they're rigorous to do the right things religiously while they're the fat cows that get whatever they want. And by the way, I'm not just picking on the women... As Amos was, um, this is just a scene. He picks on everybody for their leisureliness and their riches based upon the backs of the poor. Uh, Okay, so now in verse 6, you're going to see literary uh, master. This is just a masterful piece of literature here. Um, The way Amos preaches this is beautiful. So you're going to see a phrase repeat five times. So verse 6. This is God speaking. I gave you, Israel, cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you did not return to me, declares Yahweh. A cleanness of teeth. In America, we want white teeth. Back then, that meant you're not eating food. So it's not a good thing. (laughs) Verse 7. I also withheld the rain from you. When there were yet three months to the harvest, so in other words, they're panicking, we need the water for the harvest, I would send no rain on one city and send no rain on another city. On one field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain, it would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares Yahweh. I struck you with blight and mildew and your many gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares Yahweh. I sent among you a pestilence after that manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with a sword and carried away your horses and made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares Yahweh. I overthrew some of you, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet you did not return to me, declares Yahweh. Five times, I did this. This happened. It was a warning. It was a horn being blasted throughout the nation. It was a alert, and you did nothing about it. Yet you did not return to me, Over. And over five times. So, therefore, verse 12, here's the conclusion. Thus I will do to you, O Israel. Because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. How nice. He's setting up a date with God for them. No, do not read this the wrong way. Amos is not saying, lucky you, you win the lottery. I'll arrange a meeting and God will set you. He's actually saying <laughs> this is a threat. It says, look, because... Now, the ESV and the New King James make it sound like God's going to do something. Um, another translation made it sound like he had done something in order to prepare them. W- the the Hebrew is obviously not entirely clear, but the point is God's going to bring disaster upon them. And here's the reason so that they will be prepared to meet their God. This is a threat. It's a, because you would not return to him, prepare to meet him, because he's coming to you if you won't come to him. And that's not good news. That's more like, you know, dad saying, "Uh, Joey, get here now. One, don't make me come to you. Two, you better move that little bottom. Three, prepare to meet your dad. Like It's like that. (laughs) So Amos wants to motivate them. Now, lest we think that this is some, oh, God is just a mushy teddy bear. He will say, it's all okay. Well, verse 13, Amos wants to remind them of which God they're dealing with, not your little calf in Bethel, this God. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind. That's enough right there. You created the mountains and created, you formed the mountains and created the wind. You're pretty God and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. Yahweh, the God of hosts, is his name. Love that. God's like, by the way, here are my credentials. And then at the end, he tags his personal name, the I am that I am, Yahweh, the all capital L-O-R-D. It's like, hashtag Yahweh said that. So Amos is really laying into them with a little bit of sarcasm and literary uh, flow here. What kind of a guy is Amos? That, by the way, we're seeing is why it's important to be prepared. Because we are by default not prepared to meet God. We're not prepared to meet our maker by default. Now, back in the Garden of Eden, meeting him was a good thing. But as soon as Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden tree, they hear the sound of him walking through the garden, and what do they do? They're not prepared to meet him. They're afraid of meeting him. And so you and I, in our natural condition, hence Amos, while throwing this out as a threat, dad is coming, Wait till your father gets home. While it's a threat, it's also an invitation. Look, there's still time to prepare. And so, Amos is a book about us getting prepared. Okay, so we're going to work around chapter four with that theme of prepare to meet your God. And we're going to look at the book as a whole now. Uh, so if you will go to chapter one, and here's where um, I need to do some homework. Keeping here, get rid of the phone in case somebody really does call. Okay. Um, okay. So Amos, so he he he. There we read. He's telling Israel, "Prepare to meet your God." Now, what this book really is is it's Amos preparing. Israel to meet their God. He wants them to be ready for this. So we could look at the whole book as his attempt to prepare them for this meeting. Now, um, the wall will be working someday in the future. I, I, I like titles, so I don't know if you guys miss it, but the title of this is Ready for Roar. Ready for Roar, not war, but roar because this is how Amos comes across in this book. He wants them to be ready, and then he comes at them with full-on lion's teeth fangs, roaring through the book. So what, what, let's look at verse, chapter 1, verse 1, and see how he begins. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Okay, a few hints here. First of all, Amos is from Tekoa. Tekoa is a a country town, kind of like Micah was from a country town. It's a country town ten miles south of Jerusalem. First thing we notice is that Amos is not from the kingdom of Israel. The kingdom of Israel were the ten tribes that followed that Jeroboam fella, right? They rebelled against the house of David and Solomon. He is of the southern kingdom, Jerusalem, Judah. And he's prophesying to the other ten. Here we actually have, if you will, the picture of a modern-day missionary. Someone from another country, another nation, who's going to the other nation to prepare them to meet God. Um, we also see, so that's where Tekoa is. We also see that Amos was among the shepherds. Later, we're going to see that Amos was in charge of managing. He wasn't just a shepherd, but he was likely a manager of shepherds, and he was a manager of some orchards, some fig orchards. So really, you have um, Amos, I, I just like to think of him as, he was, he was the manager of Tekoa farms. That, that's, that was his job. Tacoa Farms, organic, all whole organic food south of Jerusalem, probably as people were traveling to worship, would stop by on the little stand and get some figs and oranges and whatever. And um, yet he ran that business. So he was a common worker, and he has this vision, and he's called to the northern kingdom. And this mention of all this happened during the reigns of Uzziah and Jeroboam. So we can date this in the 760s B.C., um, 760s BC, and then he mentions this was two years before the earthquake. So apparently, this is what we can read into, it's totally a guess, but Amos, as his message, we are like, eh. I mean, he does have good peach cobbler, I'll give him that. But his preaching is a little peachy. I don't even know what that means, but that's probably what they're saying about him. Until two years later, Amos retires, hangs up the robes, if you will. And then the earthquake happens. And then people are like, oh, let's reconsider that Amos fella. And everything's put down in a book. Um, That's probably what happened. Now in verse two, here are his words. And Amos said, Yahweh roars from Zion. What a picture. Here's the first thing is, Yahweh roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Ooh, what an image. So Yahweh is like a lion, and there's going to be more lion imagery throughout the book, roaring from Jerusalem because he's upset, as we're going to see. He's really upset with what's happening. Now, can you imagine Amos, who's a manager of Tekoa Farms, there is no one of the two or three worst images a farmer can envision is a lion to eat his lambs. That's one of the worst things he can imagine is a lion coming. And then also locusts eat all his food and a drought and everything withers. All those things show up in the book of Amos. Amos is the farmer. Israel is like the crops. God is the locust. God is the drought. God is the lion. And so here the prophet comes to the people and says, look, he's not all marshmallows and down pillows. He does have a problem with what's going on. So let me wake you up so that you can be prepared to meet your God. Now, the entire book, chapters 1 through 9, all the way to the last five verses, you could simply, if you're going to outline this book, there are ways to do it. But very simply, the best way to look at this is chapters 1 through 9, verse 14, are all the big, long roar of Yahweh. This book is one ripping roar. It struck me very late in my study that that's what's going on here. Because here's what usually happens when you read the prophets. We read them and we get lost and confused. Like, is this referring to like our time or some other time or the future? Or did this already happen? What's going on here? And we're always confused when we read the prophets. It's very simple, sort of, when you read the prophets. One of two things are always being said. Either God's upset and judgment's coming, or yet yeah, he's merciful and loving and gracious and he's going to fix everything in the end. Almost every verse in the prophets boils down to one of those two camps. And usually the way prophets work is that they'll be like, everything's wrong, and they're like, oh, but glory is God, and the deer will leap through the meadows of tulips, and then God's going to smite everyone on the head, and then everyone will be flowing to the mountains, worshiping God, and then it ebbs and flows, right? And that's where we get lost, because we're like, what is going on? Because the prophets are ripping us back and forth. Amos does none of this from the very first words all the way through 9 verse 14 it's judgment 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 this is what you've done wrong everything's going to hell in a handbasket we say there is a handbasket in here later i guess that's funny it's full of fruits and nuts too <laughs> okay So, um, he roars. Okay, so this is now, we see what he's upset about. Chapters 1 and 2, he is roaring against eight nations. Now, watch how Amos does this. The first one is in verse 3. For thus says Yahweh, for the transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Now, this is the pattern he does with each nation. He says, for the transgressions of, name the place, uh, for three transgressions, name the place, and for four. It's a formula. For these three things, ah, nope, add on a fourth. It's not that he's literally numbering them for us. It was a Hebrew way of saying, they're just so bad, let's just tack on another one so that's you're going to see that formula so he rips on damascus he rips on uh, in verse 6 on gaza which was one of the philistine uh, areas he rips on tyre in verse 9 he rips on edom in verse 11 these are all their neighbors he rips on the ammonites in verse 13 he rips on moab in chapter 2 verse 1 and then look at 2 verse 4 thus says yahweh for three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Now, who's he talking to? Remember, Judah is the southern tribe that followed Solomon's dynasty. That's where he's from, but he's preaching to the ten tribes of the north, Israel, Samaria, and so when they hear all their neighbors being doomed, like, yeah, God, get them, get them, tear their heads off. It's lion imagery, sorry. But they're like getting inside, like, yeah, lay into them, God. And then Amos says, and Judah. And they're like, yeah, we are better than those Judites. And then he saves the longest one for last. Now, his hearers are probably expecting that the sermon's over. When he hits Judah, he gets as close to Israel as possible. And it's also the seventh nation. A Jew would be assuming, ah, seven, the number of completion. He's come to the end. He saves his best part for last. Pulls it out of his sleeve. And in 2 verse 6, he says, ah, but wait, there's more. Thus says Yahweh, for three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment. Now you can see his audience getting really tense. Like, we liked this guy 20 seconds ago. Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor in the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl so so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar. This doesn't mean they're camping around near the altar. It means they're having sex near the altar. On garments taken in pledge, which sounds weird, but what they would do is if you own land and people owed you something or they took a loan from you, they would give you their garment as a pledge until they turn pay you back. But the law provided this, And said, but at nighttime you must give the garment back to your neighbor, lest he suffer cold in the night. But what are they doing? They're not giving the garments back at nighttime and then taking them during the day. They're keeping the garments, and they're saying, thanks, it's making great cultic ritual sex with our gods here. So they're using their neighbor's garments to do that. It's really disgusting. And in the house of their god they drink the wine of those who have been So they're now drinking the poor's wine. Um, Okay. Then in verse 11, and I raised up some of your sons for prophets, and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel? declares Yahweh. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. So God's saying, look, I was trying to help you by giving you godly people. The prophets would preach. And he said, stop preaching. The Nazarites were those that wouldn't cut their hair and would not eat anything from the grape. Not even a grape skin, not even a raisin, no wine, of course. And they couldn't touch anything dead. And then they're saying, oh, no, the Nazarite must drink wine, must eat grapes. So God was giving them godly leaders, and they were perverting them. So God threatens them in the rest of chapter 2, saying, it's going to come down hard. Okay, now, the roar continues. And now, for chapters 1 and 2, we're all preamble. Yeah, the other nations are bad, and they're like, yeah, they are. And then Amos is like, but you're the worst. You're the worst, and the rest of this book is about you. So, chapter 3, we begin a series of hears. In chapter 3, verse 1, it he says, hear. This word that Yahweh has spoken against you, O oh, people of Israel, I love it. Like if he's roaring, yeah, listen, listen. Okay, um, so verse two, he's going to go through a series of seven hypothetical questions, or rhetorical questions, excuse me, to which the answer is, of course not. This is in verse two. You only have I known of all the families of the earth; therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Question one. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Of course not. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Of course not. Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Of course not. Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Of course not. Does a, does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? course not. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Of course not. You hear the trumpet, you're like, ah, oh, we're being invaded. Does disaster come to a city unless Yahweh has done it? Of course not. Uh-huh. For Yahweh, God, for the Lord Yahweh, does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. Amos is saying, oh, look, I'm in on the note. God's showing me what he's up to. So in verse 8, the lion has roared. You saw that in chapter one, verse two. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord Yahweh has spoken. Who can but prophesy? So Amos is saying, look, the lion has roared. How can I not help prepare you to meet him? Then you know what chapter 4 says. We read that. You look at chapter 5. There's another here. Hear the word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. And there's a lamentation. But I want you to look at 5 verse 18. So there are five times when Amos says to him, hear. Then he switches to two woes. And so in five eighteen, you see the first woe. Woe to you who desire the day of Yahweh. Would, why would you have the day of Yahweh? Remember what he said? Prepare to meet your God. All right, this, this is, this is threat. Um, so he is trying to tell them, look, why are you desiring the day of his coming? Do you not understand what it is? To put this in our terminology, he's, he's basically what you're going to see him say. He's going to say, why do you want to go out of the frying pan and into the fire? The day of the Lord, it is darkness and not light. Verse 19, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall, you know, running from the bear and the lion, leaning his hand against the wall, and then a serpent bit him from the wall. Everywhere he goes, right? Out of the frying pan and into the fire. That's what he's talking about. It's just going to get worse. So don't desire God to come yet. Um, Is not the day of Yahweh darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. All of your religion is noise, and I hate it if it does not bring with it doing the right thing for your neighbor. The second woe comes in chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. (laughs) Look at me. (sighs) It's basically like this. Woe to those who are at ease. To those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. All right, he goes on and just says, woe to you. Oh, look at verse four. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory. This is pretty cheap up here, but ivory. And stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. Basically, they're just, they're gluttons. They're they're living a luxurious life. And so he's calling them out. Woe to you. Okay, then in chapter seven, um, we shift gears. He's no longer saying here, 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 here. And then, whoa, whoa. He's now going to give them five visions. Five visions of uh, uh, that God gives him. So the first one, we can look at it real quick. Chapter 7, verse 1. This is what the Lord Yahweh showed me. Vision. He showed this to me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. That's the spring crops. That's what he means by the latter growth. The spring crops are just beginning to sprout, and he showed me locusts. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said... So it's all a vision. He saw the locusts eating all of the latter growth in a vision. And now he responds to God. So he's praying to God in this vision. Oh, Lord, Yahweh! please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. Yahweh relented concerning this. It shall not be, said Yahweh. Wow. Amos sees what he's about to do and says, no, no, that's really harsh. And God says, all right, I won't do it. It happens again. In verse 4, he showed him judgment by fire that devours everything. Amos says, no, please, how can they stand? And then God says, all right, I relent. I won't do it. But then in verse 7, he shows him another one. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line. Now, do you know what a plumb line is? Uh, in, In short, it's just a weighted string so that it hangs straight and you can measure if the wall is leaning or not when it's being built. So the image here is that God's holding, there's a plumb line and he's measuring the wall. And obviously we know that they're not, they're leaning. So he's announcing judgment is coming. Now, um, Amos is preaching this near the temple in Bethel, the golden calf area where they're having sex on their borrowed garments from their poor neighbors. And Amaziah, verse 10, Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, the king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. In other words, he's hurting temple attendants because he said, Jeroboam must die by the sword and Israel must go into exile away from his land. So, Amaziah says to Amos in verse 12, O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah. Now, I was go home and eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is a temple of the kingdom. So, Amos answered in verse 14 and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. Dude, I worked down at organic tacoa farms, okay? I wasn't even, I didn't sign up for this. But Yahweh took me from following the flock, and Yahweh said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore, hear the word of Yahweh. You say, do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says Yahweh. Your wife shall be a prostitute in the city and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line and you yourself shall die in an unclean land and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. Only 40-ish years after these words, the Assyrian Empire sacks Samaria and those 10 tribes are to this day by human reckoning, lost. The only Jews today are basically from uh, the tribe of Benjamin and Judah because the Assyrians intermarried with the Jews until there were no more Jews. That was their way of conquest. In chapter 8, you have two more of his visions. He sees the basket of summer fruit. A lot of Californians in there. I'm just kidding. And... The land of nuts and fruits, come on. And on that day, so that's chapter 8. And then chapter 9. So those visions are, uh, the last one is in chapter 9. I saw Yahweh standing beside the altar. So probably the altar at Bethel. And he said, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake. And shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them, I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. Now, what he's saying, of course, is that, look, the Assyrians are going to come and they're going to do all of this. Everyone's going to perish at the hands of the Assyrians. God's warning them. Um, But do you remember that comforting Psalm? Psalm 139, where shall I go from your presence? If I ascend into the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. Even if morning turns into darkness, there you will give me light. Like Psalm 139 is this beautiful psalm about how God's presence is everywhere and you cannot escape it. Jonah learned that, right? Well, here Amos, it must have been October 31st when he delivered this vision to the people because he turns that beautiful psalm into a horror story where God's saying, oh, you sure can't hide from me. So, verse 2, he continues and says, look, if they dig into Shul, or hell as we usually understand it, if they dig into the place of the dead, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. Jonah knows all about that. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. Oh, Amos is really like, he likes to end with the final roar. Okay, there you go. The lion roars and Amos pleads with the people, listen, be ready. Let the roar prepare you. You don't want to meet the angry lion. You want to meet the nice lion. When you meet a lion, you don't want to be a zebra. You want to be a lion. So the New Testament is all about Jesus coming to us to turn us into sons and daughters of God. It all turns. Oops, I've been giving you the wrong verse all night. I had been telling you through 914 it was all roar. It's through 910, it's all roar. 911 is where we switch gears from roar to restore. So these last five verses, I bet that's what I did. I said five and thought 15, whatever. Okay, so these last five verses are the only words of hope. Usually, again, the prophets do throw that at the end most all of them do at the end say, oh, heaven, and oh, everything's going to be great, but they at least give you some foreshadowing of that through all the dreariness, so they like, stay with me, okay? It's not, it's going to end well. This is one of those stories that does end well, but Amos doesn't seem like, he's just like roaring, and then finally, he's like, if you're still with me, you're ready. So 9-11, in that day, I will raise up the booth, or the tent of David that has fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old. What's the image here? The image is that of Israel as the true people of God, collapsed because of their sin, because of the other nations that have destroyed them. This is the exile. It's ruined. But God is saying, there's a day when I'm going to raise that back up. Nothing new. We've been seeing this in the prophets, but that's that's how he's using it. He's using the imagery of a tent and ruins, but he's going to build it up. That, verse 12, that, so I'm going to build them up, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares Yahweh who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. In other words, what he's saying is, you're going to be getting stuff faster than you're planting stuff. It's abundance. And then he says, the mountain shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. The land of milk and honey is now going to be the land of wine and abundance. Of course, in the Bible, that's not a drunken revelry when you see a lot of wine. It it meant you had something safe to drink. And I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says Yahweh your God, and they all lived happily ever after. Now, it is important to see, because of the connection I'm about to make, that you have a footnote in verse 12. That they may possess the remnant of Eden and all the nations who are called by my name. The footnote tells you that this is the Hebrew. You're like, okay, yeah, I'm semi-familiar with the fact the Old Testament's in Hebrew. But then it says, and I'm just reading from my footnote straight out to you. Yours might be slightly worse. Just follow along. Then says, Septuagint, that the remnant of mankind and all the nations who are called by my name may seek the Lord. So rather than Israel possessing the remnant of Edom, the Septuagint, just follow me, the Septuagint says that the remnants of the nations will come to God. Okay? That there will be a great Gentile outsider coming to God. Now, if you don't know this, um, I'll give you a real quick clarification here. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew originally, because they spoke in Hebrew. But because of the exiles that Israel endured and the rise of the Roman Empire, they stopped using Hebrew. Most of the Jews by the time of Jesus weren't using Hebrew. It existed in the temple for religious things. Sure, it was there. But most Jews spoke Greek. Just like today, most, like the one language around the world is Well, Spanish and English, but it'd be the equivalent. Greek is the equivalent to English today. Um, It was sort of the international language. So most Jews spread around the world were using uh, Greek. So they found it very important to translate the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. That became known as the Septuagint. Or some Bibles might simply not say Septuagint, it will say LXX. Uh, that is the Roman numeral for 70, which septuagint, that means 70, because the tradition, the myth, and I'm using myth because it doesn't sound like this may have really happened, but it's what the Jews said. The, 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 the legend was that 70 scholars sat down in their own rooms and individually translated the Hebrew to Greek, and all 70 agreed word for word. So that was their way of saying that the Septuagint was God's official translation to the Jews. I say all that because it's important to know there's there's this difference. Most of your New Testament authors, when they're quoting the Old Testament, are quoting from that Greek Septuagint. Very rarely are they quoting from the Hebrew text. Matthew is one of the exceptions, because he was a Jew. Um, They're usually quoting from the Greek text, which now will help you understand why sometimes you'll be like, wait, Paul's quoting this psalm, but when I go to that psalm and read it, it reads a little differently. That's why. Because that's the difference that the Greek translator said, you know what, the Hebrew makes sense this way to us some years later. Language is dynamic and confusing like that. I'm sorry, that's just how it is. Okay, so back to our verse. The Septuagint sees that the Hebrew could read a little differently here. Not that Israel's going to go and claim the nations, but rather that the nations are going to come and claim God. And this is important because in Acts chapter 15, this verse is cited by James. I'm turning there, so that's a clue. You might want to if you want to, but you don't have to. I heard someone zip their Bible, so you know how that goes. Um. In Acts chapter 15, you have the birth of the church, right? Jesus has died. He's been raised from the dead. He's ascended to the right hand of God. The Holy Spirit descends upon the disciples. They began to preach in Jerusalem. It begins to catch like wildfire, okay? Jerusalem... Then uh, experiences persecution because people like Paul say, Ew, Christians, this is like some weird heretical sect of the Jews. So they cast them out of Jerusalem, which takes the gospel to the rest of the world at that point. So this Paul guy who's driving them out of Jerusalem doesn't know it, but he's a missionary before he even believes in Jesus, (laughs) driving the gospel out. Um, He then, trying to drive people all up, trying to hunt these Christians down, becomes a Christian, and now he begins to carry the gospel out of Jerusalem to the rest of the world. And after his first missionary trip, there is a significant number of people who accept the message that Paul didn't anticipate would accept the message. You remember how it happens in his first missionary journey? He would go to cities. In, he, he went mostly in the area of Galatia. And he would go into cities and find the synagogue. Because you got to start with someone who understands the scriptures you know. So he finds a synagogue and teaches to the Jews that, hey, everything you've waited for and hoped for, it's happened in Jesus. Some of the Jews would be like, mm, we'll hear you more on that. And others like, like, get out of here. And so when they would reject him, Paul would then just... Um, there would actually often be some Greeks who were curious in the Jewish way because it was very different than their pagan way. And many of them were beginning to get sick of uh, just the, the lifestyle of paganism and were curious about the Jews. So many outsiders would sit in the synagogues. They heard Paul, saw the Jews reject his message and said, hey, Paul, come tell us about it. And so Paul would tell them about it. Well, soon this pattern began to repeat itself in every city. And Paul began to realize, wait a minute. Why are the non-Jews more excited about this message than the Jews are? Well, word gets to Jerusalem that this is happening. And Jerusalem sends some Pharisees down to these churches and says, "Uh, you must be circumcised in order to be saved. In other words, we want all of the Gentiles and the Greeks to become Jews. Jews. Paul goes, "Mm, it's not how I'm seeing it. So they decide to debate up in Jerusalem. So they go to Jerusalem. There it says in Acts 15 that they all go up there. And in verse 6, Acts 15, 6, it says, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Do you have to be circumcised to be saved? And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. See Acts chapter 10 if you want to know what he's talking about. Peter is commissioned to go talk to Gentiles and they receive the Holy Spirit. And God, verse 8, who knows the heart and bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. There you go. Paul in Romans write, circumcision doesn't cleanse you, it's a cleansing of the heart. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of God not the works of the law, not circumcision, not Sabbath-keeping, but through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they, Gentiles, will. And all the assembly fell silent. How can you argue with Peter, Jesus' chosen guy, who says this happened? They fell silent, and then they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And by the way, Paul likely wrote the letter to the Galatians right around this time to tell them. Remember Galatians is all about, you don't have to be circumcised. I don't want anyone tell you you have to be circumcised. And after, verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied. Now James, the brother of Jesus here, is believed to be the pastor of Jerusalem. So he's kind of hosting this. And now he speaks and he says, brothers, listen to me. Simon Peter has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. I know, it's blowing my mind too that he wants those dirty Gentiles, but he does. That was their attitude. So verse 15, he says, And with this, the words of the prophets agree. In other words, we're shocked, but guess what? The prophets weren't shocked. We should have seen it the whole time. And he points right to Amos chapter nine and says, "Look, guys, right here." I, I j- no, I wasn't on my phone. I was looking for a verse the whole time. It says right here, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild it. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. He quotes our verse there and says, look, Amos said that God will rebuild Jerusalem, he will rebuild Israel in part by adding Gentiles to it. And hence, Paul talks about grafting, right? Branches into the fig tree. Um, then they're all, oh, right? When finally the dots, like you're seeing all these dots, like what is going on? What is he doing? And then whew, the line shows up like, oh. <laughs> Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write them to abstain from idolatry, basically. Huh. I like this because here... They're squabbling about how do we prepare people to meet God? I'm like, well, you got to be circumcised and you got to... Here in Amos, we have this conflict of people that were super religious, but they just weren't loving their neighbor well. And here the church decides early on, look, Amos taught us, Amos taught us that God wants to bring them in. The lion's roar turns us toward the shepherd's voice. Even Gentiles. That, yes, the lion roars from Zion, and it's terrifying, but he roars in order that we may turn toward the shepherd's voice. Jesus says in John 10, My sheep know my voice. It's not a roar to them, because they had turned and they came and they heard my voice. Then, you know what Jesus says in John 10, other sheep I have who are not of this flock, and I must go to them as well. The lion roars and it gets our attention so that we would prepare ourselves to meet God so that we can help others meet him. That's, that's the whole pattern here. Peter says that judgment must start in the house of God first. First. Have we heard? Has the lion roared? And if so, are we turning our back on God, saying, "Yeah, you—I no, don't like you"? Or are we hearing that to say, "Yeah, I did go astray"? Like maybe the roar is just trying to get you back on track, and now you come back and you're hearing, "It's not a lion; it's a shepherd." Okay, so we spent time in the book of Acts because this is the last thing I want to say too, is that, look, there's an obvious question of how do we prepare ourselves to meet the Lord? How do we prepare ourselves to do that? I think the book of Acts gives us the answer in broad daylight by citing Amos and saying this is happening now. Amos, the early church, was saying it's the Christian walk with Christ that prepares us to meet our God. The church saw themselves as that tradition. We are preparing Jews and Gentiles to meet with God. As we walk with each other, as we follow Jesus, all of this is preparation. Your being in these seats right now, whether I'm prepared to preach or not, is your preparation to meet with God. I know, week after week, like you can stay home and clean the house. That's fine. <laughs> um, but the right, the, the making it a pattern of one's life, that even if worship doesn't do anything for you, or the sermon doesn't do anything, I don't ever remember it, anyways. And trust me, I know you guys don't. <laughs> it's not the point. It's that by gathering by sitting under the word, by lifting Jesus up as our king in song, we are preparing ourselves to meet him. The Christian walk, I'm specifying the Christian walk because I am not saying those that choose to be spiritual are prepared to meet God. Typically, the people who like to be so-called spiritual, now there's so many different flavors to that, but typically their God doesn't roar, He doesn't roar. He's marshmallows and whipped cream. The Christian walk acknowledges that God is too dynamic to have only one side of the emotions. And besides, who said anger and wrath was a bad thing? I can get angry if um, Ron comes up to me afterward and starts berating everything I said tonight. I could get angry. But see, I'm angry for personal reasons. Because I'm feeling offended. That's wrong. That that is not good anger. But if I sorry, Ron, just use you because you're here. But if I see Ron keying everybody's car and puncturing their tires. <laughs> it is wrong if I'm not angry about that. That's why. The lion roars. There are things that it is wrong if he's not upset about. And when you read Amos more in detail, and I hope you have or will, you'll see Israel deserves it. I mean, they're just messed up. Um, The Christian walk, though, acknowledges that God is a dynamic, complicated, not easy to simplify being that we're walking with. And that's preparing us to meet with him. Bumper pads don't make you a good bowler. They don't prepare you. So, keep at it, friends, with your Christian walk. This new year, keep at it. You might feel like you're not making much progress, but that's because the closer you get to the light, the more the dirt is exposed. That's just true. You should not gauge your walk with God on your feelings. You just keep doing the Christian walk, knowing that, yep, even when you have to confess all the ugly sins, those are preparing you. Even when when Richard has to capo the other fret again, (laughs) that worship is preparing you. And even when Pastor Brandon goes past 730 again, it is preparing you to wait for the Lord. Um, Let's pray.